Let's take our Bibles and go to John's Gospel, chapter 19. Please. John's Gospel, chapter number 19. One thing I want to say before I get going is a reminder that you're going to get about 175 times this week, okay? Next week, church time changes. Okay, now I look, this is going to be a huge challenge. But it is at what time, church? 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock, all right? Next week, everything changes for our scheduled churches at 10, then the Spanish church at 11.30, amen? And so we're going we're gonna to be uh, switching things up, so be watching, be watching social media as well as texting and email reminders. If you do not receive our reminder emails, you can text RCBC to the number 97,000 and you can start to receive those. You'll be getting updates this week. We do not normally bombard you, but I'm warning you, this week you will likely get bombarded with messages, okay? Because we want to make sure we're in our place at 10 o'clock and then we're going to turn right back around and start a Spanish church and that will be the new pattern. Church here will be done by 11 and the Spanish church will start at 1130 so we can kind of get things cleared out. Also, and this is going to really shake some of you up, so I really apologize for this. But we're going to be coning off all the parking on the east lot, okay? Now, let me tell you what that means for you. When you see a coned off parking space, that means you pass it up, okay? That means I do not move it. I do not squeeze between it. I don't do any of that. I am going to go past it. Okay, guys, listen. If, if we have 50 Spanish folks show up or 100 Spanish folks show up this coming Sunday... They, they need parking, okay? They need to be there. Remember this, okay? This is shocking to you, but please listen. The distance from the east lot and the west lot to this location is the same. Okay? It's the exact same. So if you will just help us by next Sunday, just when you see the cones, let it be your reminder to just come on around the building and park over here on the west side of the property. And I'm hoping the cones will help you. This is west. Think ball field, okay, west. Think elementary school, west. If you want to know what the east parking lot is, it's the first one you come into, okay. It's the one where the RV is. It's the one that's going to have 1,572,000 cones lined up next Sunday, okay. So that, when you see orange cone, think east. If you do not see orange cones, you are in the west lot, and that's where you're supposed to park, okay. And, and also, there's a lot of parking in the north lot, too, which is the one behind the church by the gym, We've got to make room. It's our biggest concern about adding a second worship service for Spanish speakers is the parking. So you've got to help us get around there, okay? And so uh, if you're mad at me because of tradition, uh, just go sing that song again. Break down the walls of all my tradition. That was for you, okay? That's why I had that song sung today so that you would do that. No, I'm just kidding. But, but in all seriousness, you will have cones there and hopefully they will remind you of what to do, all right? Boy, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. For three years, I have been studying the life of Christ with you. And more than my three years of study, the thousands of years of human history and the thousands of years of biblical history all lead to this moment. This, what I'm about to read to you in the Bible, is the most important moment in human history. 
It is what it's all about. And for sake of time and focus of the message, I want to just draw your attention to just three verses. I will read many other verses today from all the different accounts of the crucifixion of Christ. But I want to just focus today on John 19 and verse 28 through 30. Would you notice there what the Bible says? Uh, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with, uh, uh, with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had finished, or excuse me, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. Amen. I want to speak to you on these words that you see every Sunday when you walk into this auditorium. Three simple words that changed the world. It is finished. These are the dying words of Jesus on the cross. Last week we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That that moment was stopped by a betrayal. Judas Iscariot leads a group of Roman soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas sells out Jesus and turns him over to the Roman government. What has transpired between that moment and this moment is a night filled with trial. First by Pontius Pilate, a man who was the acting governor of that area of Judea. Uh, Think of him more like a mayor, if you will. He is given jurisdiction by Rome to oversee uh, the political and uh, uh, official business of that particular territory. He becomes famous in scripture for the man who literally was was the acting figure that turned Jesus over for crucifixion. Also, in the middle of all this, Jesus is sent over to Herod, who was another religious figure. Think of him as a governor over a larger area of Israel. So there's, there's, there's Pilate, then there's, then there's of course, uh, Herod, and then above them would be like Caesar, the emperor of Rome. These men both stand and listen all night to people falsely accuse Jesus. He did not commit. And after being up all night and being beaten and tortured and mocked, Jesus is then taken out just outside of the old city of Jerusalem up to a hill called Golgotha, which, which, which means literally a place of the skull, a place where people went to die. And there for the next six hours, Jesus is going to be crucified on a cross. Meaning, Jesus is literally, after being up all night, after being tortured and beaten and mocked, Jesus is going to have his hands laid down, stretched out over a post, and literally nailed with railroad spike-type nails in between his wrists. His feet are going to be stacked together, and another railroad spike-type nail is going to be driven down through the feet of Jesus. 
They're going to take that cross, as, as John 12 said, he was going to be lifted up. They're going to take that cross. They're going to lift it up in the air with Jesus attached to the cross. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to drop it down into a hole that has already been augured out for the cross. They're going to stand Jesus up now, suspended between heaven and earth. He's been completely scourged and torn and broken He's bled out almost. He's nearly died of exhaustion. He is now suspended between heaven and earth. And he is literally gasping for every breath of air that he can get. Every time he exhales, the weight of his rib cage presses on his diaphragm, making it impossible to breathe. He gets enough strength mustered up to push up on his feet. And the pain shooting from his wrist to his feet Push him up just enough to get another gasp of air. This goes on for, for hours on the cross, hung between two thieves, bleeding, dying, tortured, broken. When it is all said and done, at the end of it, Jesus cries out this statement. It is finished. There's two ways to look at the word finished. One means it is over. I give up, it is done. The other means it has been accomplished. And I would like to say to you that when Jesus said it is finished, he was not saying it is over. He is saying it has been accomplished. It is a Greek word translated it is finished. It's a, a word tetelestai. You may have seen it or heard of it before. It is a verb that when he said it literally means it is a, an action that happened in a moment that has ongoing effects in infinity. Meaning, what happened at this moment is going to have effects that ripple out throughout human history for all who would hear. So literally, what happens here on the cross was not a defeat. It was not a cessation of being. It wasn't Jesus giving up. It is Jesus announcing to us 2,000 years later that what he did on the cross was accomplish the salvation of all of mankind by giving his life in exchange for ours. Uh, this phrase in, 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 in history during this time was used in several ways that help us understand what Jesus was saying. For instance, when a, when a, when a painter would, 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 would craft a painting and he would, he would put that final stroke on the painting. And he would sign his name, as often painters do, in the bottom corner of the painting. He would say the same word. It has been finished. The same word was used uh, in military terms when, a, when an army would defeat another army. And they would take their standard into enemy territory. And they would stake their standard on enemy territory. And they would begin to spoil out the enemy. The captain, the leader of that group of people would put that standard in enemy territory and say, it has been accomplished. The same thing would be true uh, in the justice system. In the justice system, the, uh, it is said that, that every time you would go to a prison, outside of the prison, on the, on the wall of the prisoner's uh, uh, prison cell, would have a list of the crimes that the prisoner had done. And as a reminder of why he was there and for how long he was there. When that prisoner was released from prison, there would have been an official stamp on that list of crimes. And it would say that word, 
it is finished. It has been accomplished, meaning he has paid his time for the crime that he committed. And I am told that that person, that criminal, would, would need to carry that list with him the rest of his life. And any time anybody ever said to him, hey, aren't you supposed to be in jail or or, or didn't you do this, he would always be able to pull that list out with that official stamp on it that said, my crimes have been paid for. And I got to tell you, I see every bit of that pictured in what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross. Did not Jesus uh, on the cross literally enter into enemy territory and establish his eternal standard uh, for all those people that would believe on him that he literally would rescue them out of enemy territory and claim them as his own. Did not Jesus uh, take the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, and did he not take it out of the way, nailing it to his cross? So on the record of your heart, on the record of your life, if you have been saved in here today, I'm telling you that stamped on every crime, every thought, every evil, every deed, every wrong you've ever done are stamped these words for all of eternity. It has been finished. Now I got to tell you friend, this is a good thing for us. What Jesus did for us on the cross is absolutely the greatest single act in human history. And you need to understand what happened to Jesus on the cross, what it meant and what it means for Jesus to say to us, it is finished. Number one, it is finished means that there has been a perfect substitute provided. It has been accomplished means that there is a substitute that has been provided. Now, uh, of course, you would expect that the crucifixion uh, includes, uh, is included in every gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we've already studied before, when you see this happen, when all four gospel writers include the story, many times they are all emphasizing something different. So John may say something. In fact, John's the only one that records the statement, it is finished. Uh, there are other places where, where Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And on and on and on. But we do know that, that, that when you read Mark's account, and I'm going to read it for you here, there was a very unique thing that happened when Jesus died to me that picture the fact that he was accomplishing the perfect sacrifice, uh, a substitute on our behalf. In fact, listen to Mark's words, chapter number 15, verse 6. Now at the feast, listen, at the feast... He used to release from them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, Jesus? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out and said, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Folks, I see in that paragraph the perfect picture of Jesus being the perfect substitute for our sins. Listen very carefully what I'm saying this morning. On the cross, that was your crime to pay, it was your death to die, it was your hell to endure. 
But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was on, he was on that cross in your place. And what I'm saying to you is this is pictured for us in the crucifixion itself. First of all, this took place at the feast, or you would say at the Passover. Now, the Passover was Israel's annual reminder of what God did in the Passover back in the book of Exodus. Remember that? Remember when Pharaoh was rebelling against God and God was saying, let my people go. And and so what did God do? God sent ten plagues, right, out to Egypt to demonstrate his power, to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And what was the tenth of the ten It was the Passover, or that what they call it now. It was actually the plague of the death of the firstborn of every family. Every family that did not offer an innocent lamb as a sacrifice and appropriate the blood of that lamb to the door of their home. If you did not have blood from an innocent lamb on the door of your home that night, death was going to come in and was going to take the firstborn of your family. And that night, that's exactly what happened. The vast majority, if not all, of Egypt, all the way up to Pharaoh, who did not know the blood, who did not believe in the lamb, their lives were taken away. But every Israelite that believed in the lamb, that shed his blood and appropriated it to the doorpost was what? Was forgiven, was set free to life. Death was not visiting that home. Why? Because they believed in the lamb. And folks, the Bible says here, listen, watch this. Jesus died on the Passover. Could there have been a more perfect picture of who Jesus was than a lamb that was innocent that died so that other people could live? That's who Jesus was. And then then not only was there the Passover, the Bible tells us this really intriguing story about the way Pilate used to do crucifixions. And it was his custom on the Passover to release a prisoner and set him free. And the Bible gives us, uh, could there be, guys, could there be a more clear and dramatic picture of what happened to us than the picture of Barabbas? The Bible says it was his custom to release one prisoner, and there was a notable prisoner in jail by the name of Barabbas, who the Bible says in this text, Mark 15, murdered someone. He was a murderer. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about an identity thief. I'm not talking about somebody that robbed the local convenience store. Talk about somebody that, that in, a, in a moment of political insurrection actually executed another human. He was a notorious and evil criminal. And Jesus stands these two men. Think about this. He stands these two men up in front of the crowd and says, who do you want me to release? You want me to release Jesus or do you want me to re- release Barabbas? And Pilate is puzzled by this. You want to know why? Because Pilate has been examining Jesus all through the night. By the way, three times in the Gospel of Luke, he says he is innocent, he is innocent, he is innocent. One time, Herod says he is innocent. Another time, the centurion at the cross says he is innocent. By the way, even the criminal on the cross beside him said he is innocent. By the way, you could have examined Jesus from then until now. You could have examined Jesus to eternity past and eternity future, and you will not find a sin in Jesus because there was no sin to be found. He was the innocent lamb of God on one side and on the other side there is a murderer 
absolutely destined for death criminal. And the Bible says at Calvary, watch this now, the innocent man died and the guilty man walked away. I don't know about you, friend. I can't think of anything else that better describes what happened to me when I came to Jesus. The guilty man walked away and the innocent one died. Has anybody listened to me today? What I'm saying is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. I tell you, I'm thankful for that this morning and I share it with you as a moment of hope for anybody in this room who has not been saved. And you carry your own guilt, your own shame, your own past, your own sin, your own brokenness. You brought it in here with you today. You don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. You don't know who to turn to. You feel it. There's shame. There's, there, there, you know you're separated from God. You know there's no hope. I'm here to tell you, there is hope in the perfect substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who died in your place, and he is the only chance you've got to walk away free. I think of a song that was put out a few years ago that's called, You Love Me Anyways. And he says, you love me anyway like nothing in life that I've ever known. You love me anyways, oh Lord, how you love me. Listen to this. I am the thorn in your crown, but you love me anyways. I am the sweat in your brow, but you love me anyway. I am the nail in your wrist, but you love me anyways. Watch this. I am Judas's kiss, but you loved me anyway. Now, friend, the cross is the ultimate and for all time love letter from God to you. And it says every time you read it and every time you hear it preached, Jesus loves sinners. And I'm here to tell you, you have no ability to make a sacrifice for yourself for God. Number one, you're not eternal, so you can't pay for your eternal sins. Number two, you're not perfect, so how can an imperfect person pay a perfect sacrifice for sins that they've committed themselves? You need someone to step in for you and take away your sin, and the only person who can do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, it is finished because a perfect sacrifice uh, is provided. Number two, it is finished because a sufficient payment was made. A sufficient payment was made, and what was the payment? What am I talking about here? The Bible uh, talks about the fact that Christ paid for our sins. A Romans chapter 3, God sent him forth to be a payment through faith in his blood. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12, we are not saved by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He obtained eternal redemption for us. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2, he is the payment for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24, he bare our sins in his body on the tree. What am I telling you today? I'm telling you that when Jesus died, he made a payment for your sins that you could not pay. It is finished, meaning no other payment will do. Through the brokenness of his body, through the shedding of his blood, and through the giving of his life and the resurrection of his body from the dead, Jesus is the payment 
for our sins. Now, I want you to walk with me for just a few minutes to this cross because I want you to feel it for just a second if you can. And I hope you'll stay with me and I hope you'll let it have whatever effect that it needs to have on you because this is actually what happened. The Bible says in Mark's gospel, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and, watch this, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The scourging. This is the first thing that happened when Jesus was officially condemned to die. The very first thing that happened is that Jesus was scourged. The scourging, another word for scourging, is whipped. Unless you think this is a simplistic whipping or like your grandpa telling you to go grab a twig off a tree in the backyard. That's not what this was at all. The scourging would have taken place by two very strong and professionally trained soldiers that would have first tied Jesus up to a post or suspend him from the ceiling where his toes would barely be touching the floor. Inside of a scourging room, a trench was cut out as a drain system for blood. These soldiers would suspend their victim from the top or wrap them around the post. If you've seen the movie uh, uh, that, that Mel Gibson put out a few years ago, that's how they depicted it. I don't know if there's a right or wrong. It's brutal, no matter how you cut it. And they would take a whip that was called at that time a cat of nine tails, which, which referred to the nine leather straps that came out of the handle. On the end of the leather straps, there were uh, weights like, like stone balls or, 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 or metal-shaped balls, and that would provide more strength to the soldier as he uh, brought the whip down upon the victim's back. Embedded into each of the nine leather straps were broken pieces of bone and stone, forming sharp edges. And when that whip was cracked down on the body of a victim, the, the, the heavy weight would bruise the skin. And then the, the, uh, the, the sharp objects would grab a hold of the skin. And with one action, the soldier would strike the victim and the leather, would, the leather straps would embed literally into the skin of the victim. And then in the next action, the soldier would tear it back off. And in that action, the bone and the stone would literally shred the skin of the victim. In fact, it was so severe, I believe it's Isaiah chapter, or excuse me, Psalm 22 says in prophecy, I may see my bones, they stare upon me. So I don't know if you've ever had a compound fracture where you could literally see your bones. This is a gruesome and cruel action. In fact, many of the victims died of scourging never made it to the crucifixion but Jesus did go on in fact it says here and the soldiers then led him away inside the palace into the governor's headquarters so Jesus comes out of this beating okay he comes out of this scourging and now he's going to go back to Pilate he's going to stand before Pilate listen to what it says and they the soldiers clothed him in a purple cloak now they put a robe on Jesus and listen to this they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now these are not thorns like from a rose bush. These are, these are thorns that likely were two to three inches in length. Oftentimes in Israel they were actually woven together as a part of fencing to keep sheep inside of certain pastures. So you can imagine two to three inch tight uh, thorns being 
placed on your brow. And another text says that they took a reed, a, a, a mock scepter, and they smashed it down on the head of Jesus, impressing those thorns into his brow. And it says here, and they were striking his head with a reed, listen, and spitting on him. They mocked him and stripped him of the purple cloak, opening up the freshly welded sores to the robe right back off. After Jesus is mocked and tortured and spit upon, and another text says that somebody reached up into his precious face and grabbed a handful of his beard and began to rip it out of his cheek skin. Jesus now is going to be led out of Pilate's Hall, down past the old city. And the old song, you may have heard this, Via Dolorosa, the old way of suffering is what it was called. It's about the road that Jesus walked from the torture chamber to Calvary. And on his way, they would have loaded Jesus up with an 80-pound crossbeam, carrying his own cross, unable to make it to the cross because he's lost so much blood and so much uh, 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 water and liquid from his body. He's literally fainting out. He falls on the ground and the soldiers grab a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene. And Simon grabs that cross and carries the cross up to that place I referred to earlier called Golgotha, the place of the skull. They call it that because if you were to go to Israel today, you'd see sketched in the edge of the mountain, it actually has the visibility of a skull. And on top of that mountain, the place of the skull, is where now they're going to take Jesus, and now they're going to nail him, and now they're going to lift him up, and now they're going to drop him. And on that cross, listen, for six hours, Jesus, after all of that, He's going to gasp for air for six hours. And in the middle of it all, he says these words. And this is what I really wanted to get to. Look, I, I, I am moved. I am moved by the physical suffering of Jesus. But you've got to understand, this isn't just physical suffering. Because anybody can die. Anybody can die on a cross. In fact, two other guys died with him. There's more to it than the thorns and the nails and the whip. Listen very carefully. In the middle of it all, he cries out these words. Listen very carefully. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, the universe leans over the bowels of heaven and snuffs out with his holy fingers. And for now, three hours, there's darkness over the face of the earth. And at that very moment, watch this now, at that very moment, God has forsaken Jesus. The sun has been snuffed out. Darkness is over the entire earth. And you say, why in the world did God snuff out the sun? I'll tell you why. If God wasn't going to watch his son suffer, neither was anybody else. And at that moment, at that moment, God now has turned from father to judge and placing on Jesus in the darkness, in the middle of the day, all of his friends forsaken him. The physical pain literally torturing his body. Now for three hours in darkness, literally God the Father is going to pour what we talked about last week, that cup out on Jesus. And that cup is filled with the dredges of God's wrath. And for three hours on the cross, Jesus didn't just suffer physically. Listen to me. He suffered every bit of punishment for every sin of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl that ever lived or will live in three hours one Friday Jesus did that for you you think of how much God hates sin and you think of how much he treated Jesus for those three hours it's something like this he treated Jesus like you deserved so he could treat you like Jesus deserved the payment was his blood the payment was his death the payment was 
our sins. So it is finished because a sufficient payment was made. And finally, and I'll be done, it it is finished because scriptural promises were fulfilled. Now, this is one of my favorite parts. I referred to this last time. Folks, listen. The cross is the centerpiece of the Bible. It is the centerpiece of human history. If you do not understand the cross, you do not understand God, you do not understand the Old Testament, you do not understand Jesus, you do not understand, for that matter, anything. By the way, if you think for one second that you can be good enough to get yourself to heaven, then you have missed everything I've just tried to say for the last 25 minutes. You have no chance. And here, in John's Gospel, it's amazing, I'm, not, I'm, I'm running out of time here, but in John's Gospel, you know, every, every Gospel writer has, a, has like something they emphasize. Mark emphasizes the story with Barabbas, the servant. John emphasizes some of the physical, I mean Luke, some of the physical sufferings. In fact, John, Luke, excuse me, Luke emphasizes the thieves on the cross. The perfect man in the middle, the perfect sacrifice. John, now listen to this, John's perspective is that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And so what does John emphasize? Listen to this. He emphasizes the fulfillment of Scripture. The fulfillment of Scripture. I read one of them before you in verse number 28. But did you realize several times in John, as an example, John uh, verse number 24. So they, this is John 19 verse 24. So they said one to another, let us not tear it but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill Scripture. A direct quote from Psalm 22 verse 18. In verse number 28, the I thirst statement that I read is a reference to Psalm 69 and verse 21. In verses 36 through 37, for these things took place, the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That's a reference to Psalm 34 verse 2 and Zechariah chapter 12 verse number 10. Folks, what I am here to tell you is that in principle in prophecy and in picture. The cross is the main message of the Bible. And everything points to it. Everything goes back to it. Scriptures are fulfilled in the cross. And it reminds me of a story in John chapter 3 when the Bible says that Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. And he makes this statement with Nicodemus in chapter 3 verse 14. He says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, etc. You know that story? The people were complaining. The snakes got loose in the camp and started biting everybody, infecting them with a deadly poison. And the Bible says that God lifted up, God had him make a brazen serpent, a brass serpent, and lift it up. And Moses was walking through the crowd saying, look, look and live. Notice, he didn't try to put together cocktail of good works and some kind of serum of church attendance and sacrifices. I hear, drink a little bit of that, that'll help you. He doesn't say, change your behavior, throw some money in the offering, get to the temple. That's what people do today, right? People start feeling the guilt of their sin. They start trying to take some cocktail of good works, blend it up with being the best person you can think about being. And, oh, goodness, I haven't given to a church in so long. Maybe I should drop a $20 bill in the church. That'll make me feel better. Or, or oh, good night. I, 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 should, uh, I should go to some confessional booth and pray. And, and you're just drinking from a cocktail. 
And all that cocktail is going to do is numb you to the real need that you have in your life. And the real need you have in your life is not drinking some religious cocktail, attending some religious church service. Oh, it's, it's Easter time. You know, everybody's showing up next week. Why? To take another sip from a cocktail. Jesus doesn't say to do any of that. Here's what he says. Look and live. Look and live. And he held up that, that serpent. And if you looked at it and believed it, you lived. If you didn't, you lost. So let me ask you a question this morning. What's it going to be for you today? I'm telling you that the cross is lifted up for you to look and live. That's what you need. You need Jesus. You need to trust him. You need to believe in him. You need to accept him. You need to ask him to be your Lord and Savior. You look away from church and religion and good works and, and, and realize those things will not do it. Only Jesus can. And I pray you'll look to him this morning as the only hope you have for salvation. Let's pray together. Hey, listen, the message of Jesus demands a response. You're either going to receive it or reject it, but you can't do, you can't do neither. If you, re, if you do not receive it, you are, by default, rejecting it. It is your sin. It is your salvation. Your cross, your shame, your Jesus. You will accept him or you will reject him, but you cannot stay neutral. I wonder here today if there's somebody who would say, Preacher, I, man, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever accepted Christ as my Savior, but man, I know this. I don't want to die. Spend eternity separated from God in hell. I, I, need, I need Jesus in my life. Man, praise the Lord. Everybody here that's been, that is a Christian has a moment where they opened up their heart and accepted Jesus into their life. Where they believed the gospel. Well, they believed it was their sin, it was their cross, it was their resurrection. And all they had to do was believe and accept. That's what the Bible says. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's simple. You can't, he can. Religion says do, Jesus says done. Can't have both, can't do it both. You either try to work your way to heaven or you let Jesus take you to heaven. It's your choice. So... I wonder if there's someone here today that say, Preacher, I'd like to choose Jesus today. I'd like to accept him as my Lord and Savior. If you are, right there in your seat, you can just ask Jesus to be your Savior. That's simple. Call on the Lord and be saved. And let me help you walk through that. There's no magic in this prayer, and there's certainly no magic in me. But if you are here and you would like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, then I would invite you to obey the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, right here, right now, just say, Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I cannot get to heaven on my own. But I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me and rose again. Today I accept him is my Lord and Savior. Thank you for loving me. Help me not to be ashamed of you. And amen. If you're here today 
And you just prayed that prayer in your minute. You're glad you did. I'm thankful for you. I want to be the first to welcome you to God's family. We want to help you. We want to be there every step of the way in your Christian journey. Is there anybody here across this room say, Preacher, today I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Just now, I asked him to be my Savior. I'm glad I did. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm thankful. Preacher, would you remember me in prayer? And I'd like all the help I can get. Anybody like that? Just raise your hand. Say, Preacher, that's me. I prayed that prayer. I meant it. I'm glad I did. Just now, just asked Jesus to be my Savior. And I'm so glad that I did. We'll be praying for each of you as we continue to study this. Ask God to help us to apply it, to live it, to follow it all the days of our lives. Let's stand for prayer if we could. Pastor Hector, if you'll come. He will give us our closing announcements and pray for us.